And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. Tony Blinken is off on a seven-country dash through the Middle East. His goal? Trying to stop the war from spreading. Can he succeed? That's coming right up. And hello there, Peter Mansbridge in Toronto today. Welcome to uh, another week of The Bridge. Looking forward to uh, chatting throughout this week. We're going to start with our regular Monday feature. That's Janice Stein from the University of Toronto's Monk School. Her analysis of the two big hotspots, Middle East, Ukraine. But also, as we continue to keep our eyes on other parts of the world, Janice's pick this week or what we are missing. Uh, but before that, a couple of uh, a couple of notes to keep in mind. We had an extremely successful um, debut idea last week on on Thursday on the Your Turn. We uh, we introduced a feature that had you writing in with an answer to this question: If you could change one thing about our political system, what would that be? And we had we had a lot of letters, and it was. It was really quite revealing of what you're thinking in terms of how the country operates politically, how it could operate better. Um, a lot of your ideas, and you know, a number of you have written afterwards. Well, what happens to all our idea, our ideas? Are you going to submit them to Parliament? That kind of thing. Let me tell you, a lot of MPs, a lot of cabinet ministers, uh, listen to the bridge, and so don't worry. Your those ideas are going to get are going to get some discussion around various tables, not just our own dinner tables, but around some of the uh, politicians' tables as well. Because what you were reflecting is kind of the mood, certainly, of the kind of people who listen to the bridge. So good for you. Well, we're going to keep this theme going, this idea, if there was one thing you could do, um, on a number of different topics. This week... You should like this one because you certainly write about it a lot. Um, if you could change one thing about how the news media operates in Canada, what would that be? All right? So if you could change or improve by changing one thing about how the news media operates in Canada or just generally, what would that be? So here are the things to keep in mind on that question. Short, to the point, remember to include your name and your location. Now, last week, we kind of let that slide for a lot of people who, who forgot one or the other because they were, they, were, they were busy focusing on their answer to the question. But really want that, and, and it will be a disqualifier if you, if you forget, okay? So keep that in mind. The question is there, if there's one thing you could do to change the way the news media operates, what would that be? All right? We often talk about how can we improve journalism? How can we improve the kind of news that you're getting? Has there be, been a deterioration in news? Have you lost faith or trust in the news media? Well, here's your opportunity to name one thing. One. Okay, not two, not three, one thing 
what would that be? And be imaginative, be innovative. Okay? And as you were last week, lots of great answers to that question uh, about last week changing in the uh, political system. So there you go. Short is the answer. You know, if you can do this in a paragraph, that's great. The long letters, they don't get the time that you spend putting into them, okay? So let's, let's keep, you know, we had a lot of letters last week, uh, and uh, we didn't get half of them on the air. So keep that in mind, all right? Um, okay, and where do you send? The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The cutoff time for this is Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern. I probably had 50 more letters come in after the cutoff time last week. But a cutoff time is a cutoff time, all right? So you've got, a, you've got three days to think about this. And as long as you get it in before Wednesday at 6 p.m., you're in the contest. And the contest is a signed copy of uh, um, my latest book, along with Mark Bulgich, How Canada Works. And that's off to you uh, immediately after the program airs on Thursday. Okay, enough about that. Let's get to Janice. Um, and you well know Janice Stein by now. She is the uh, founding uh, director of the Monk School of uh, Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. And we're lucky enough to have her join us every Monday to deal with the, uh, the two big stories, the two big foreign stories on the landscape, which are Israel-Hamas and Ukraine-Russia. And Janice brings us up to date on kind of what's happening and her thoughts and her analysis. She is a Middle East expert. She's a conflict management expert. She's uh, listened to and her advice is sought by uh, governments, leaders, business leaders, literally around the world. Um, so we listen uh, to what Janice has to say, and she's so plugged in <laughs> in all the different uh, important places in the world uh, to help her with her analysis. Okay, enough from me. Let's get, uh, let's get to Janice with, uh, with the first question. Here we go. So Janice, Tony Blinken's off again, traveling. Uh, I'm sure he's traveled more in the Middle East in the last three months than he's been at home in the United States. But this, this latest trip had him uh, uh, over the weekend in, in both uh, Turkey and Jordan. Uh, and after that, he's going to Qatar, UAE, Saudi Arabia, Israel, Egypt. He's also going to stop in the occupied West Bank. So what's he likely to encounter with all of that? Well, he's going with a suitcase, Peter, packed with demands. Uh, in Turkey, he's probably having a harder time than he thought, largely because Hamas has many largely Hamas-owned businesses uh, operating out of Turkey, and Erdogan uh, certainly is not predisposed to interfere with that. Uh, so that was probably a tougher reception. Erdogan has also been a strong supporter of the Palestinians. But Blinken needs Turkey on other files. He can only go so far. Uh, Qatar is much the same uh, when he gets there. Blinken needs Qatar. It's hostages, hostages, hostages. 
but also large number of Hamas-owned businesses that keep the funds flowing. And the United States now, the light's gone off tracking the funds. Uh, So there's an irony here. Qatar is most valuable as long as those hostages are in Gaza. Once they're out, other parts of the agenda are going to bubble up. If we go to the Gulf, uh, UAE and Saudi Arabia, uh, they are very important to Blinken because they have to be part of the solution the day after. Um, They are the funders of the reconstruction of Gaza. They will dwarf others. And Blinken needs them not only for their money, but he needs them because they give legitimacy, uh, Arab legitimacy to any solution that comes out of these conversations. Um, Egypt is a big player here. It controls the border with Rafa. We tend to forget, Peter, that Egypt blockaded Gaza along with Israel. Um, So what goes into Gaza from the Egyptian side in the future will really matter. Uh, How it goes in, who inspects what goes in, what Egypt is willing to coordinate and to cooperate with will matter. Um, Egypt is a neighbor. It's a frontline state, really. Uh, in this conflict, surpassed only by Amman, Jordan, where King Abdullah uh, is an absolutely crucial piece. Um, He has historic responsibilities for the holy sites as a Hashemite, which he takes seriously. Um, He, like all his predecessors, terrified that... Israel will engage, doesn't matter what you call it, voluntary evacuation. It's forced expulsion of Palestinians from the West Bank into Jordan and from Gaza into Egypt. He misses no opportunity to talk about how unacceptable that would be. Um, In the background is a slightly muted conversation just bubbling up now about some sort of Confederal solution as a possibility to this. Israel, Jordan, West Bank, Gaza, probably uh, challenging in its own way to put together, uh, but at least with some ballast in Jordan. Problem for King Abdullah, 65% of his public is already Palestinian. He doesn't want to destabilize his regime. Last stop Israel, um, or wherever in the itinerary it is. But it, you know, this is a stop that I, if I were Tony Blinken, I'd be taking a deep breath before the plane hits the tarmac. It is about when are you moving to phase three? Give me a schedule of the withdrawal of your forces. Um, I need to know what the timeline is here and how fast this is going to happen. Secondly, humanitarian aid. It is truly urgent that Jordanians have a ship off the coast of Gaza. They are treating patients in a hospital ship. Food has to get in. Um, If starvation, if widespread starvation is not to ensue. You know, over the weekend, I saw a video 
on the web. Well, but it was of eight, but it was of eight trucks coming in through Rafa. They went viral this tape, and it had Hamas fighters on the back of the trucks, um, which now uh, who knows uh, if those are real or not. But it speaks to a larger problem. How do you secure um, the humanitarian aid that comes into Gaza? Um, Rafa now has a million people in a town of 300,000. Everybody's jammed up against that border. Um, and, the and the aid trucks don't get beyond Rafa. So it is really dire. And there have to be ways. And I think Blinken will have push very, very hard. Last big one, what's, what's the plan right. for the governance of Gaza? So one development in Israel, the defense minister on his own, clearly on his own, uh, brought a plan to the uh, security cabinet in Tel Aviv, which said, Technocratic leaders, in other words, those who are not part of the Palestinian Authority or Hamas, uh, people who, uh, who don't have a prior association, will be identified and they will be put in charge of the administration of Gaza, who's going to do the identifying, unspecified. But he made one commitment that Blinken wanted to hear, no new Israeli settlements under any circumstances in Gaza took that to a cabinet meeting, it's impossible to describe the fireworks that went off in that meeting um, because it, the no, the willingness to talk uh, about an interim government, Palestinian interim government, uh, is enough to blow up those two extremist right-wing partners. Um, Two events that probably flew under the radar, really important. Uh, one, by the chief of the defense staff. The second, by the controller general, like our auditor general. Each of them independently, without getting the Danielle's agreement, are launching widespread inquiries into the military failure, the state failure, uh, they are so broad, these inquiries, no accident, one announced one day, the other the next. <laughs> They're not waiting for Netanyahu to end this war. They are starting the process of holding everybody accountable. I, this is Netanyahu's worst nightmare. And what this indicates, uh, people are tired of giving him an unlimited runway to start this process going. They're going now. Okay. Let me, um, you've given us a great overview of uh, um, certainly of Blinken's trip and where he's going and, the, and some of the different agendas that may be in play in, in some of those conversations. But is there, in terms of all these countries, uh, leave Israel out of it for a second, but all the other countries, is there a common purpose there, aside from, uh, you know, sharing territory, the same space on the planet? Um, are, are there, is there a common purpose to end the war? Do they all want this war ended? No question. There is a consensus in every one of those countries. Stop it yesterday. There is urgency about ending the fighting in Gaza. Every one of them is worried that if it keeps going, it will escalate. 
other hotspots in the region. They want it stopped now. Everyone. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I heard um, Blinken yesterday on Sunday over the weekend saying that his single his main focus on this trip is to to bring de-escalation uh, to this conflict not bring peace not to bring an end to the conflict but to ensure that it doesn't de-escalate is that reading too much into what he said yeah well I, I you know he's very careful with his words um the reason he's using that that formula i want to make sure this doesn't escalate uh, is because with the Israelis, uh, he has been talking about drawing it down, pulling forces out. He hasn't been using the phrase the end of fighting uh, because I think in his judgment, he knows he'd get a flat out no for that. But what he's hearing from every Arab government he and capital that he visits with, the best strategy of de-escalation, stop the fighting. The Houthi attacks would stop if the fighting stopped. On the border, on the northern border, Hezbollah would not feel compelled to keep going if the fighting stops. So the best de-escalation strategy is end the fighting. That's what he's being told everywhere. You mentioned Hezbollah on the northern border with uh, Lebanon uh, to Israel. Um, This was an interesting week because uh, one of the top Hamas leaders who was in Beirut at the time, was assassinated. Now, everyone assumes it was the Israelis who pulled that off because that's the kind of thing they can do. Uh, but Israel's not saying anything, but the assumption is that it was Israel. Uh, the the uh, Hezbollah uh, leader, Hassan Nasrallah, um, uh, announced that uh, this would not go unpunished. But really, quite frankly, you know, he fired a few rockets. Uh, Hezbollah fired a few rockets into Israel, may, maybe more than a few, but it, it seemed like it wasn't quite the big response that a lot of people were, were fearing might happen. No, you're, you're right. There is a kind of code um, that both sides use. They speak with missiles, but they understand each other. So you fire 10 or 12 over the border at Israel. And this one, by the way, so this may be enough to satisfy Israel, took out a big ear monitoring station. Uh, just around Kiryat So there's something concrete he can say he did. Israel responds with the same eight or nine, but everybody watches the count and makes sure that they're not a lot bigger than yesterday, and both sides walk away understanding. We're, we're doing what we have to do, but we do not want this to escalate. I think we're still there now, Peter, uh, but it would be foolish, frankly, not, not to worry. Uh, that that one could blow by accident, um, which is what could happen. And, of course, uh, the United States is the one now firing back uh, against the Houthis and against uh, and against those who are sending missiles against U.S. forces. So that one might go before even the northern border. It's in everybody's interest, therefore, to stop the fighting. Um. Last point on Israel-Hamas. You know, you've warned us before, and we warn again that the the numbers that come out, you got to be careful uh, assuming too much about uh, their uh, veracity uh, in terms of the numbers. But the numbers we're left with at the end of this week, uh, or the end of last week, were 22,000 dead in Gaza. 
most of whom are civilians, most of the civilians, uh, women and children. And that has provoked the outrage just, uh, you know, understandably so around the world. Um, but 9,000, say the Israelis, of that 22,000 figure are Hamas fighters. Now, you know, they're either killed or, or, or captured. Put that, that number in context for us. So, you know, it's, as you've just said, people are very dangerous to play the numbers game, uh, not only because we can't verify, but because in the past, military body counts can be very misleading. 9,000 fighters out of approximately 30 to 35. That says two-thirds of Hamas fighters are still able to fight uh, in Gaza. I don't think that's the right indicator. Let's look at the command and control structure, which is really what matters in all warfare. For all intents and purposes, in the north, that command and control structure has been totally disrupted. So the Hamas leadership is not able to transmit orders down the chain. There's isolated fighting. That's not true in central and southern Gaza. There are fierce battles still going on between Israeli soldiers and Hamas fighters who are not dressed in uniform. That's why these numbers are so difficult. So you judge by the fighting, which you can monitor um, by open satellite sources. There is still fierce fighting, which says that the central military structure in Hamas is still intact in half of Gaza. Uh, And that's, of course, why the Israelis are resisting drawing down their forces. I think it's it's um, it's a much more even fight than those numbers um, tell us nine thousand to one hundred and seventy five soldiers. Well, that, that is the you know it, I mean it sounds when you just use those two numbers nine thousand Hamas to one hundred and seventy uh, Israeli soldiers, it sounds like a slaughter that's going yeah. on there. It would be. I mean, that's correct. If you look at the uh, just at the military piece of this, not the civilian piece, but that misses the cost uh, to Israel. One of maintaining a reserve army mobilized. Israel has a small standing army and mobilizes reserves. That's what it did on, by October the eighth. Where do these where do these young people come from? From the high tech sector. And from the agricultural sector, those are the two sectors that earn Israel's hard currency as it exports into international markets. They're reeling from the fact that so many people uh, are not at work, but they're in the army. That's partly why Blinken has been able to persuade Israel to draw down. Um, It is just so difficult to sustain over the long term. That kind of costs don't get reflected in the 9,000 to 175. On the Hamas side, they're in tunnels, they're well-stocked, food, fuel, ammunition, uh, they prepared, they can sustain this for a long time. That's a different kind of asymmetry. And especially if they still have command control structure in place. They do. There's no question they do in the south and parts of central Gaza still. All right, um, let's move to our other focus, uh, dual focus over these last three months, Israel, Hamas, and then Ukraine. So when we look at Ukraine 
this week. Um, the Ukrainians seem to be increasing a tactic they did not use for most of the first couple of years of the war, which was the fight was inside Ukraine. It wasn't outside Ukraine. And they were, uh, as tempted as they might have been, they didn't go across the border into Russia. Um, that's not the case anymore. They are attacking inside Russia in a couple of strategic locations. Um, what's going on here? What's this telling us? So this is a strategy of desperation uh, by the Ukrainian military leadership because the, the war on the ground is not going well, Peters, and Russia captured another destroyed town. There's real fear that it might break through on the ground in Donetsk and be able to push forward. What's the only option that the Ukrainians have now to use their longer-range attack missiles and attack Crimea, which is what they did? Crimea matters to perspective one it's absolutely essential to the resupply of russian forces everything is staged in crimea and goes through and supplies russian forces secondly if there's a political symbol for putin it is crimea which he seized in 2014 uh there are elections coming up and he cares about them even though the rest of us will write that one off he cares and when there are repeated attacks uh, against Crimea or against the border towns where there were significant Russian civilian casualties this last week, that makes it very difficult for him to say to voters, we've got this in hand, we're winning. I think over the next two months, we are going to see this kind of war in the air, attacks in the air. Um, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, Russia escalated its attacks in the air against Kiev and other cities. They overwhelmed Ukrainian air defenses because they mixed the missiles. Um, so the electronic uh, identification was more difficult. Uh, that's the critical battle to watch for the next two months. Uh, if Russia can breakthrough Ukrainian air defense. Um, that is, frankly, uh, a game-over strategy uh, for Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine's only resort now is go behind the lines, uh, make it tough to resupply, inflict casualties in, in the effort to really create the sense in Russia that despite all the claims to victory, uh, Putin has not been able to secure his core objective. We've seen that work before. Remember the Tet Offensive? Mm, 68. It a, yeah, it was a terrible loss, military loss for Hanoi, uh, but it turned the tide of the war because people lost confidence in the United States and in the South Vietnamese government. Very similar kind of strategy, Peter by Ukraine right now. So the desperation on the part of the Ukrainians to get a better air defense system uh, included even Zelensky appealing to Trudeau in this past couple of days. I, I, I'm not sure, quite frankly, how much Canada can offer there in terms no. of uh, bolstering their air defense system. No, no, I mean, not a lot, not a lot. Um, frankly, we, you know, 
uh, how stretched our army is. We're hearing from the chief of the defense staff. We're hearing from our chief of the Navy. Uh, we are down to the bare bones. Um, we, we have some capacity on the ground uh, to make armored vehicles, and we have some ammunition stocks. But what Zelensky is really going to need now, resupply missiles, that's not something where Canada is, and air defense, that's not something where Canada can really make a critical difference. All right. So we, you know, clearly we're looking at a, another one of those key moments in the situation in, yeah. in Ukraine. Yeah. Watch the air. Watch the air war in the next two months. I saw one thing that in these past couple of days that seemed to me that it must have really <laughs> upset um, Putin. And that was one of the Chechen leaders offering up a, a, a deal with the United States. We'll release some of the Ukrainian POWs we've captured if you um, stop the sanctions against his particular family. It wasn't even Chechnya in general. It was his, his family, uh, uh, the, the Chechen leader's family. Uh, you know, that, that, that of course, is not going to go anywhere, but it also must you know, upset, uh, to use a, a oh, calm word. Wow. What a bizarre story that was, Peter. Yeah. When I, I mean, that's almost a, a, a light moment because it's so bizarre that it's almost impossible to believe. You know, Kadyrov is one of his closest allies, and he goes out on a limb like that and says, I'll exchange prisoners if uh, you can, if United States, you lift the sanctions against my wife. <laughs> I mean, where would you, you can't, you can't make this stuff up, frankly. Uh, if we tried, we, you know, our listeners would say, uh, come on. Uh, so what that really tells you is that Putin, uh, who thinks he pulls all the, the strings here, um, can't control some of his closest allies. You know, unclear to us whether Lukashenko, the president of Belarus, stepped in because he was asked to with Prigozhin or stepped in on his own. Even the most brutal of dictators um, has trouble with his friends always. It's your friends <laughs> that do in, as we know, right? right? And this is just... Okay, we're going to take a break, but uh, when we come back, it's we, we want to start including once again, as we mentioned last week, the, the kind of um, uh, area that you've been so good at, which is the sort of what are we missing story. So what part of the world uh, are we missing? We're going to come back with that right after this. And welcome back. You're listening to The Bridge, the Monday uh, episode. Uh, Janice Stein is with us from the uh, Monk School, University of Toronto. And uh, as we do each week, we've been looking at uh, the Israel-Hamas situation and updating on the Ukrainian story as well. But uh, we're introducing this week the, um, the, old, the old segment that we used to do uh, called What Are We Missing?, uh, which Janice has always been big on, uh, who, you know, Janice follows all all the countries in the world, it seems. And she always has something to say on that area about what we should be thinking. And this one is actually something that's been bubbling along for the last, well, few years, uh, the fear that China might move on Taiwan. 
especially so after the Russians moved on Ukraine. So what's happening on that story this week? Well, what's happening is there's an election in Taiwan, and it could be a critical one for the bigger story. So tell us about that. Big, big election coming up next Saturday, January the 13th. Peter, you know, we've all been told over and over, this is the year in which half the world votes. Um, I'm releasing itself, but this election is a pivotal one to start with. Uh, there are two political parties really uh, in Taiwan. One is the old Sun Yat-sen's Kuomintang and Chiang Kai-shek's party goes back all right from the beginning. They fought the Chinese communists uh, in a civil war, lost, uh, withdrew to Taiwan. Irony of history, they are now the friendliest to the government in Beijing. Their view is we need to we need to accommodate we don't poke xi jinping in the eye we deepen economic relationships we uh we we have uh, in a sense we struggle to keep our autonomy here we don't want to end up like hong kong uh but we avoid being hong kong by preserving close family relationships uh, you know i may have overstated it just a bit but that's certainly the tone KMT is behind in the polls. In the front is the Democratic Progressive Party, the DPP, uh, led by William Tai, who is ahead. The story here is not only this election, but the fact that the DPP has now had two successive terms. If it wins a third term, uh, which it looks like it will, and you and I have both seen polls be absolutely wrong, so I'm going to be watching on January 13th. But if the polls are right and he wins, uh, Xi Jinping is going to be a very unhappy leader. Uh, he's going to be unhappy because William Tai is even more outspoken than his predecessor uh, about keeping uh, his distance from China. He does not use family-like language. It's the reverse. Uh, he talks about, uh, in, he, he, he skitters around the word independence, but it's, it, it's on the tip of his tongue, uh, which would, of course, be a disaster. Uh, and even more important to Xi Jinping, that outcome would say there's no political path here to reunification, which she says is inevitable. This is not a fluke that the DPP has won. It's a pattern in which the majority of the voters in Taiwan uh, are now hostile uh, to, to Beijing. And that's got to be, uh, for Xi Jinping, um, a very distressing signal. Now, what can make this just a little better? Uh, there's parliamentary elections, too. There's a third party, the Taiwan People's Party. If together, the Taiwan's People's Party and the KMT get enough in the legislature to do what Xi Jinping hopes, which is restrain the new president, that might soften the blow. Um, but this is an election uh, where the truly the future is at stake, not because of anything that's going to happen in the election, but because of how Xi Jinping reads the results. How, 
how is the West uh, looking at this? Uh, do they have a horse in the race here, or are they trying to stay out of saying too much? Ian, they're trying to stay out of saying too much because, like always, domestic politics really matters. And um, what the West wants sometimes, if it speaks openly, voters do the opposite. Uh, in many of these countries. So silence is a good policy. I would bet there are many who are secretly hoping that the, that the DPP does not win because they recognize uh, how escalatory that be, how much risk, additional risk that would put into the situation. But certainly they're hoping that there's a split, that William Todd takes the presidency, but that the parliamentary elections are much more evenly distributed uh, so that Xi Jinping can tell himself a story. That's what this is about. Coming out of it on Saturday night, can Xi Jinping tell himself a story that there's still a possible political path um, to reunification? If he can't, that's the nightmare for everyone. I'll say. Well, listen, this will obviously give us something to talk about next week because it'll, uh, well, by the time we get together again, uh, we should have a clear result out of Taiwan. We should. And we'll see how, uh, what that may mean. Uh, Janice, thanks so much for this, as always, uh, and we look forward to talking to you again in seven days. See you in a week, Peter. Janice Stein, Dr. Janice Stein, University of Toronto, uh, with her weekly assessment of the situation, um, not just in, uh, in the Middle East, but in the Ukraine uh, and uh, Russia as well. And this week, adding China, or well, adding China and Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan being uh, the election this coming weekend. And uh, with any luck, we'll have a clear result, as we said, and have uh, an opportunity to discuss the impact of that result next week when Janice visits us. Okay, we have a a few minutes left, and I'm glad we do because I wanted to get this in. Do you remember last year, we talked to um, uh, Catherine, <coughs> excuse me, Catherine Hayhill, who's a climatologist in the United States with Canadian connections, um, and we had a great show with her. So she's kind of updating us on the situation uh, in terms of climate change, where we stood at that time. Well, her uh, she has a newsletter which I know some of you um, subscribe to, and it's a it's a good one. Comes out every week, uh, and Catherine's uh, obviously her newsletter in the past week has been about, okay, where are we um, at the end of one year and the beginning of a new year? And there's kind of a mix of good and bad in here in terms of uh, uh, how to feel about the uh, climate situation. Um, on the one hand, 2023 was the warmest year since human recording began, uh, according to uh, Catherine. Um One analysis from the Copernicus European Center for medium-range weather forecasts put the average temperature at 1.48 Celsius above pre-industrial levels, meaning it's the warmest year on record by a lot. July was the hottest month ever recorded, and thousands of high-temperature records were shattered around the world all the way through December. Okay, so that sets the scene for what the year was like, but... Here's a couple of things that you can think on the positive side. Uh, these days, climate solutions are already making a real difference. In the U.S., according, this is, I'm just reading straight from uh, Catherine's uh, newsletter. In the U.S., according to a new EPA record, all the EVs and hybrids already on the road 
of measurably reduced U.S. carbon emissions from vehicles. New instant rebates of $7,500 to the U.S. on qualifying new EVs and $4,000 on used ones will help the U.S. begin to catch up to China, where 42% of passenger cars are already plug-in hybrids or fully electric vehicles. No country can rival Norway, though. Their plug-in fully electric cars make up 90% of registered personal vehicles. And now EVs can charge as they drive, if you live in Detroit or Frankfurt, that is. What about electricity? Solar is now the cheapest form of electricity in most countries around the world, saving people money that can be used for other important things like teacher salaries. Back in 2021, a school district in the small town of Batesville, Arkansas, made headlines when it announced that it would raise its teachers' salaries by up to $15,000 a year, thanks to all the money it saved from putting in a solar array. Within a year, their school superintendent heard of at least 30 other school districts in the area that were doing the same. That's impressive. On the downside... More than three-quarters of the temperature increase is caused by burning fossil fuels. So, of course, that's being phased out, right? Wrong. Oil and gas production in the U.S. hit an all-time high last year. And while the world burns, the five super-major oil companies, BP, Shell, Chevron, ExxonMobil, and Total Energies, are set to pay shareholders record dividends of more than $100 billion for 2023 likely topping 2022's record of $104 billion. All right. Now, um, she also has a section called What You Can Do Personally. And, um, you know, maybe later in the week we'll, uh, we'll mention a few of those. There's three things there that what you can do personally. Um to have an impact on the climate story. But those are the big headlines, the overall headlines. If you're interested in Catherine's uh, newsletter, and I know some of you are, it's called Talking Climate with Catherine Hayhoe, H-A-Y-H-O-E. All right? Okay, to recap, we have a new contest this week. Thursday, on your turn, I'll be reading some of your some of the best letters I get from you on this topic. Okay, here's the topic. Single focus. If you were able to change one thing to improve the news media, what would that change be? All right, so it's one thing, not two or three. One thing. And you should be able to tell me what it is and why you want that change. In a paragraph, a normal paragraph, not a really long paragraph, okay? So keep it focused. You were great on this last week. Keeping it short, keeping it focused, because there'll be lots of entries again, I'm sure, this week. And the more we hear from people who haven't written in before, the better. We love that. But whoever you are, no matter how many times you may have written, go ahead, let us know. I know that I get a lot of mail on this topic, so I'm sure you all have some, an idea of one thing you'd do to change the news media. 
that you think would improve the way the news media operates. So let's hear what that one thing is. Um, you send it to the Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. We have a deadline. The deadline is 6 p.m. Eastern Time this Wednesday. And we need that time to process all of the mail, get it organized, and decide uh, which ones uh, we're going to read. Okay, so if you could keep that in mind, 6 p.m. Eastern Time this Wednesday. You've got the question now. Got lots of time to uh, give us your thoughts on that. Uh, the winning entry will uh, get a signed copy of uh, Mark Bulgich's and my latest book, How Canada Works, uh, on the bestseller list, by the way. That's it for this day. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours. Mm-hmm.